The text for the sermon this evening is taken from Luke chapter 2, which will be read in a little bit. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to have go through kind of a series of questions. And the first question is, why do we gather every single year on December 25th? Which, by the way, in case you do not know, Christmas Day started 27 minutes ago. Christmas Day actually starts at 6 o'clock on December 24th. But why do we celebrate it on this day? Well, there are some popular theories that like to claim that we stole it from the festival of Saturnalia. It is so popular that I was even watching an episode of Big Bang Theory yesterday where Sheldon so proudly declared it was actually a Saturnalia that we celebrate. But the problem is, is history does not bear that out. Saturnalia, we have no record of Saturnalia for about 300 years after an establishment of the birth of Jesus. So unless Christians figured out how to time travel, I don't think they stole it from Saturnalia. The actual reality is, is that in the, in the late second century, Christians were trying to calculate when Jesus was crucified. And so they believed that he was crucified on March 25th. And so, and the reason they picked that is because some believed March 25th to be the first day of creation. And so based upon good old pious Jewish belief, a great prophet was conceived on the same day they died. So therefore they believed Jesus was conceived on March 25th. Guess what happens when you add nine months to that? You get December 25th. That's where it came from. But the question comes is, why celebrate the birth of Jesus? Birthdays were really not that big of a deal amongst early Christians. It was not big amongst Jews. In fact, it was the pagans that celebrated birthdays, not Christians. So why did they celebrate the birth of Jesus? Well, Luke 2 begins to give us this answer. So if we can put that on the screen, you can kind of follow along. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was quite an important figure in history. If you're like me and you have a birthday in the month of August, you are born in a month named after him. So, fun little fact for you. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And by the way, so this detail of Quirinius, uh, Caesar Augustus, and if you go all the way back at the beginning of chapter 1, uh, Luke mentions Herod the Great. This is helping you fix a point in history. This is letting you know that everything you are reading is a historical event. And that's very important to remember because in this time of Christmas, we are filled with so many stories of enchantment and wonderment. We have, we have wonderful stories such as, by the way, understand, I like most of these movies, but like Elf or Polar Express, or the Santa Claus. All these movies have these wonderful, magical events. 
but they don't really happen. Those movies are fictional. It is very tempting for us to turn what happens in Luke 2 into fiction. And so that's why we have Caesar Augustus. That's why we have Corinthians. That's even why in our creed we say that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. To remind you that this is historical. So it all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town, about the size of Ricketts. So not exactly what you call a thriving metropolis. And kind of like Ricketts, it's not on any major highways. Nobody really, it's not one that you had to go through to get to Jerusalem, for example. So he went to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. This would be a little bit smaller than Battle Creek. Because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, if you are a girl 13 to 15 years old, imagine if you got the news you were pregnant. That's how old Mary was. And the reason we say this is because she was pledged to be married. In that first century culture, when you turned 13, girls, you were pledged to be married. And about in your, when you turned 15 or in your 15th or 16th year, you got married. That's the way it went. So that's why we know she was 13 to 15 years old. And a 13 to 15 year old girl being pregnant, that would be complicated. And now they're going to have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because the government complicates things. Did you know the government does that sometimes? Well, it did back then. And going from Nazareth to Bethlehem would be kind of like going from here to Council Bluffs. Anybody by chance going to Omaha or Council Bluffs for Christmas? Think of that route. If you've ever driven it, or the next time you do, drive, when you're driving that highway, imagine that there were no paved roads. Imagine there weren't bridges going over all those different highways and streams. And think about all the hills that go that are in between here and Council Bluffs. And you kind of get an idea as to what they were traveling. Except for instead of hills, they had mountains. And what made it even more complicated is in the part, of, when they're almost to Bethlehem, they have to cut right through the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Which I don't know if you know this, but it took about two days to walk from one side of Jerusalem to the other. So the amount of time it would have taken for them to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem was probably about four or five days. Walking, or maybe there might have been a donkey involved, and Mary is very late in her pregnancy. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So one little detail there in verse 6 is it says that it was while they were there. I know that so many versions that we hear about the birth of Jesus that it was a rush job. Like 
They got to town and boom, Jesus was born. But the text doesn't reflect that. The text actually shows that it was while they were there. And actually, the King James actually even makes it a little bit clearer, where they say, while they were there, the days were fulfilled. This is letting you know that they had been there a few days, maybe a few weeks even, before she gave birth. And she put him, wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid him in a manger. Do you realize how profound that last part is? Who is this child? This isn't just any child. The one when we read in John, Genesis chapter 3, the one who gave the promise to Adam and Eve that the serpent's head would be bruised and that his, and his heel would be bruised, that is the same one who is laid in that manger. The same person. The one who you read Genesis 1 reading, saying, let there be light, and there was light, who said, let there be an expanse to separate the skies and the seas, that is the same one who was wrapped in swaddling claws as a little baby laid in a manger. In other words, that is God becoming human flesh. And we say he was a baby. I mean, he was a baby in every sense of being a baby. I like this in the hymn that we were saying at the very beginning. Once in royal David City, in verse 3 it says, He is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feels for all our sadness, and he shares in all our gladness. So in other words, Jesus, the little baby Jesus, he cried. Why? Because babies cry. He would, be, he would burp up food, just like bur babies burp up food. He would, his, they didn't have diapers like we do now, but there would be some type of changing because he pooped, he peed, just like babies do. The God who created everything became a human like you. This is actually why there's an old tradition in the church when, we get to, when we're saying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, when we get to the phrase that he became man, there's a tradition that we bow at the waist in humility. The humble reality that God became human flesh like you. So naturally what comes to the next question is, why? Why would God give up the sweet spot of his throne? If you want to read what it was like, kind of get an idea of what it was like for Jesus, Read Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord upon the throne, the train of his robe fills the temple. And he has seraphim, the burning ones, who are singing day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the same one that is in the manger. So in other words, he gave up that throne to make the womb of Mary his throne. And then a manger, his throne. Why make that exchange? Well, simply 
He did it to die. He became human flesh so that he could die. Why did he have to die? Because he loves you. Because you are born a sinner. Think about this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lost your temper, become short with people, possibly even tonight trying to get ready for church? Do you ever gossip, talk about people behind their back? Have you ever failed to stand up for somebody who needed standing up for? Have you ever failed to help somebody in need? All those very little subtle things and even the thoughts in our minds that we'd be ashamed if anybody ever knew them. All of it is a reminder that you are a sinner. You were born in sin. You were born in, a, in rebellion to God. You were born an enemy of God. And so Jesus became human flesh in order to suffer and die and take upon himself the wrath of God which you deserve. He took all of it for you so that you may be at peace with God. And when I say peace, I don't mean like it's peaceful weather outside because there's no wind and it's not cold or anything. I mean peace that you are not at odds with God. It means that every wrong you have ever committed against God is forgiven. It's as if you have never committed it. That's what it means to be peace with God. And peace with God also means peace with one another. If you ever want to know what this kind of looks like, back in 1914, there was a time, and it's actually going to be talked about in a video we'll hear later, that there was kind of a glimpse on earth of what this looks like. 1914, in the battlefields in France, the German and British soldiers were fighting. Well, on Christmas Eve, they declared a truce. By the way, if you want to watch a really good movie version of this, it's called Joyo Noel. But they decided not to fight. And one day, like some point of an evening, they started hearing in German, the words that they know, they know, or the tune that they know, of Silent Night. And so the British soldiers began to singing, all is calm, all is bright. And one by one, the British and German soldiers, who only hours before were firing at each other, trying to kill each other, were joined in one song, singing that hymn, Silent Night. And before long, it went more than a song. They began celebrating Christmas together. They started exchanging gifts. They even played a soccer game, which apparently the Germans won. They, they sang with each other. They had worship together. They even shared in communion together. And they were for a time at peace. And yes, this is a very well-documented event in history, in World War I. They laid down their arms to celebrate the birth of Jesus. 
And you know what? When they tried to go back to war, they couldn't. They could no longer fight with the ones that they just worshipped with. And so the German and British military ended up shuffling the soldiers around so they could keep the war going. But on that night, and in some places it lasted up to New Year's, they got a glimpse of that peace that comes in Christ. People who are at each other's throats, loving, caring for one another. Peace that comes with forgiveness, love. The peace that comes from Christ alone. This is why he became flesh. In order to die and bring peace to you between God and man, and by consequence, with peace between you and your neighbor. In a world that is constantly ever divided, every time you turn on the news or look at social media, it's nothing but division. You are told of a God who promises peace, unity, in the blood of that child, in the blood of Christ. Now there's one little neat detail that comes out of Luke chapter 2. You know, there's a reason why we call it Christmas. Now the Christ part, that's kind of easy. We always say, keep the Christ in Christmas. Christ, because we're celebrating the birth of Christ. But what about that mass part? Well, this kind of actually comes out of Luke 2, where it says, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a what? Manger. What's the purpose of a manger? It's a feeding trough, right? That's where you feed animals. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I'm going to slightly ruin some Christmas narratives. That Greek, the Greek word for inn is kataluma. That more appropriately is translated as upper room. Do, does that sound familiar? There is only one other time in the Gospel of Luke where the Greek word kataluma comes up, where the upper room appears. It's in the Last Supper. Because you see, our God does not wait until he returns to give you taste of peace. And by the way, if you want to watch some really, really cool images that are on the internet, this kind of goes with this. Okay, I'll come back to that. Sorry. When you come to this altar, the one who was in the manger, that place that was dedicated for the feeding of animals, he, there was no room in the upper room. So sorry, there's no innkeeper. I'm sorry to ruin that part. The innkeeper shows up in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not in this one. But there's no room in the upper room because Jesus was not ready for that yet. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, he would be in that upper room. Maybe not that specific one, but in another upper room. And he would say, take, eat, this the bread is my body. Take, drink, this blood, this wine is my blood. And this, by the way, is why that word is important. Because it's been translated as in, because the King James kind of started. But what's been translated as in, we lost this connection. That what he is telling you in Luke is that the one who is in the manger is in the bread and wine by which you taste 
the peace of God, and you are united to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is why we call it what? Communion. Common union. You, the many become one. And this is where, if you want to look up that really cool image on the internet, go watch the pictures of D-Day when they're standing there and taking communion right in front of battleships. That is where peace is tasted. He gives you it until he returns. We just celebrate this day for the joy, the wonders of peace that is in Christ. Because God became human flesh to die for you. Because he loved you. And he died for you that you might be his child and his heir and that you may have peace with God and with one another. So may we live in that peace with one another. Forgiving, understanding, putting the best construction on one another. Living in the peace he has given. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Keep in one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen.